Uh, tonight, we're going to start a little series on the hallmarks of a biblical church. The hallmarks of a biblical church. And so let's, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of just do the introduction tonight, <clears throat> and then we'll get back at it in, in two weeks. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look to your truth, your word, to know how not just to live as Christians, but also how to live within the church and how to run the church and how what, what are the key hallmarks of a biblical church. And Father, we pray tonight that you'd give us wisdom as we entertain um, just beginning this series. And, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, go before us and uh, just clear our hearts and minds of anything that distracts us from the study of your word tonight. Thank you for all that came out. And, and Lord, we do think of these people in Hawaii and Lahaina who is this whole town's just burning down. It seems incredible. But Lord, we pray for these people that you would keep them safe. And Lord, uh, buildings can be rebuilt, but lives are kind of, there's a finality to death. And so Lord, we pray that you would uh, watch over them, keep your hand upon them. And Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us through our study tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So you should have an outline there, and you can turn just as I introduce this, over to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to start tonight. And um, I, I'm calling this the hallmarks of a biblical church. And uh, somebody said, well, is that what that says, biblical? Because it looks like two threes or whatever. And uh, I don't know, that's the font. That was the font that they gave me. So I just put it in there and I thought, oh, okay. It looks, and I didn't notice it until afterwards. But um, for some reason, that's how they make their bees. But it's really the foundation for life and ministry within the local church. That's really what we're going to be looking at. And so as we introduce this tonight, um, I just want to start with an illustration. There's a, there's a um, back in the 12th century, um, more than well, eight, 800 some years ago now, in London, England, there was a company founded called the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths. <laughs> That was the name of the company, the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths. And they actually were so well at what they did, they received a royal charter in the year 1327. Um, and from that time on, hundreds and hundreds of years, it was called the, the Goldsmiths Hall. That's what this company was called. They kind of shortened it. They just called it the Goldsmiths Hall. And you can look them off the internet. The same organization still exists today, believe it or not. In fact, their offices are in the same place that they were, they occupied in 1339. Talk about longevity, right? In London, England. And this company exists for one sole purpose. The only responsibility this company has had when it was started, now they've kind of branched out into some other things, but when it started, the only responsibility it had, it exists to test the purity of precious metals. That's all they did. Um, silver, gold, uh, today they've added uh, platinum, uh, palladium, different precious metals, and they still, they weigh and they test the purity of these metals. And if a metal, a piece of metal passes the necessary tests, in their, in their offices, in their evaluation, um, if it meets certain standards for purity, then the goldsmith's hall, they, they stamp a, uh, the, the piece of metal with an official symbol. So you can look at it and go, oh, that has the goldsmith's hall 
And the official stamp is called a hall mark. <laughs> that's where this word comes from. Uh, that's where our English word comes from. And it's because this goldsmith's hall put their mark of approval, indicating this metal had passed the test for genuineness. And we call it a, a hallmark today. Not the greeting company, but you know, <laughs> I'm, made, I'm sure that's what they had in mind when they named their company. But eventually the word came to be used of whatever marks something as what? Genuine, right? Or as meeting a certain standard. And so as we look at some indicators or hallmarks <laughs> Of, of a biblical church. There's four or five of them we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. Um, we, want to, we want to look at these qualities, the attributes, which mark a church as truly biblical. So if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes here to this young disciple in the faith, his, his son in the faith, and he really tells him, Paul tells him the reason why he's writing this letter. And, and the reason he's writing 1 Timothy, and in a very real sense, even 2 Timothy, and in a very real sense, even Titus, right? They're all pastoral epistles, we call them. And he, he wrote them for a very simple reason. And it's stated right here for us in verse 14. Look at what he says. He says, I hope, Paul writes, to come to you soon. So he's saying, I'm planning to come to Ephesus where Timothy was stationed as a pastor. But he says, but I'm writing these things so that, and then in verse 15, he gives the reason why he's writing this. He says, I'm going to come, but in case I can't make it for whatever reason, I get delayed, well, I really want to come, I'm going to write you this letter, and this will get to you quicker than maybe what I will, but it's very important that I get you this information. And here's why he says he's writing in verse 15. He says, so that if... I delay, here's what it is, you may know how one ought to behave in the whole household of God. That's the whole purpose he wrote these letters. That some people would understand how to behave, uh, how to conduct oneself, you could say, in the household of God, which is what? The church. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. And the key word here we want to focus in on is that word behave, or some translations say conduct. Um, and a strepo in the, in the original language, and it, 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 it basically means to conduct oneself in, in certain, uh, with certain principles in mind. There's certain principles in mind. When you conduct yourself, you want to live up to those standards. You want to behave according to those standards. So Paul writes Timothy, just in case he's not able to make it in person to come to Ephesus when he hoped, and he thought, it's so important, i got to get this information to Timothy. Timothy would know, the whole reason was, so Timothy would know the principles by which a church should be conducted or how they should behave um, in the household of God. And the church that belongs to God is ultimately, and, and ultimately to his son, Right? And, and this is a very interesting verse because what does this verse tell us? What does this verse tell us? Um, what is implied by Paul writing these words to his young disciple in Ephesus as he pastors this church? He, he wants 
Timothy to understand the principles by which you run a church, right? He wants Timothy to understand how people should behave in a church. And, and that tells us a couple things, but it, it tells us that a, a particular local church, how it conducts itself, how it behaves, it matters to Jesus Christ. Or God wouldn't have had Paul write this to Timothy if God's up in heaven going, ah, I don't care what they do in the church. You know, as long as they're in heaven one day, who cares? Who cares how they do church? But Paul was planning to come, but he says, I can't even wait until I come. This is so important. And just in case I'm delayed, I want you to be sure to know how to behave, how to conduct life in the church. And that local church was in Ephesus. Um, and it tells us that Christ is not indifferent about how a local church conducts itself. And yet, when you talk to people who go to a smattering of different churches, they almost give the impression it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As long as you go to church. It doesn't matter if they're having a rock concert or if they're, they're singing a cappella hymns or they're doing this or they're doing that. Or it doesn't matter if they, the preacher teaches from a Bible or from a book or just gives some good, helpful hints for godly living. It doesn't matter. You know, don't be so nitpicky on these things. Well, apparently it does matter, right? It matters to God. And there's another implication here. It matters to Christ. He's not indifferent about how the local church conducts itself. But in verse 15, I see also that it's possible that there are wrong ways to do church. There are wrong ways to do church and right ways to do church. And that's kind of what he, he points out there. He's, in, in verse 15, he says, you know what? I, I, people need to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And I'm going to tell you how you ought to conduct yourself in contrast to the wrong ways that people may be doing as well. And if you doubt that there are wrong ways, if you're saying, well, where does that? Just read through the New Testament. Read through Paul's epistles. What's he doing? What was he doing when he, we were going through 1 Corinthians? Correcting, 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 right? He's always correcting people. Why? Because it matters. This stuff really matters. He corrects all kinds of problems through all his writings throughout the New Testament. Or if you even read um, the letters that, that from the, the Apostle John, like Revelation, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John in Revelation. What's, what's the first, you know, several chapters about? It's about what? The, these local churches. And he's correcting them. And he goes through each one. And he says, here's your problem. Here's your problem. Here's your problem. Well, there's a third implication here. So there are wrong ways to do church. Thirdly, and I see this also in, in verse 15, I think Christians, even Christian leaders, I would say, and even in Paul's time, Christian leaders who accompanied the Apostle Paul, they're not out of this. I think he has them in mind as well. They don't automatically know how to conduct themselves in a church. This isn't something you just get saved and you just automatically know, right, how to behave in a church or what's important in a church. They have to be taught. You have to be taught. You have to be trained. You have to be told. And here's why we have this letter. This is what Paul is doing. There's a fourth implication there, and it's simply this, that no church or no group of church leaders gets to establish its own principles. And this is what we see going on today. We, we don't have the privilege to do our own philosophy for doing church. And yet, 
in the modern day church growth movement, this is what you see. You see people that are mostly entrepreneurs that have a marketing background. They go into a community and they say, okay, we're going to go around and ask people why they don't go to church. And then we're going to tell them, well, we're going to create a church that doesn't do any of those things. So come to our church. And generally, they're pretty successful. If they're a good speaker, if they got a good personality, if they have any marketing ability, this is how Rick Warren started his church. Just went around and asked people why they don't like church and then told people, okay, I'm going to start Saddleback Community Church, and it's going to be a church like no other because it's not going to do any of the things that, that you don't like about church. So what are you doing? You're, you're, you're pleasing people. You start a whole church based on trying to get people to like what you're doing. So you don't automatically know how to do this, and we don't get to establish our own guiding principles how to do this. Um, God's word tells us. Well, there's a fifth thing here from verse 15, and this is simply this. God has told us how to do church. I could see if God hasn't given us any information right, on how to, how to do church, but he has. So if he didn't, then okay, yeah, go be creative, create your own little principles, but God has already given us principles. And it's funny, I see, how quickly the church, when it finds something in God's word that doesn't really, uh, they're, not, they're not agreeing with or they don't like or maybe it's a little too harsh, it doesn't matter whether it has to do with marriage, it doesn't matter if it has to do with raising kids, family, finance, church, whatever, whenever people find things that they don't, they, what do they do? They come up with their own principles, right? They come up with their own uh, kind of way of, 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 of running life, of philosophy. And, and God has already told us how to do things. He's told us how to have, what, a godly family. He's told us how to live our personal lives. He's told us how to run our finances. He's told us how to have success in our marriages. He's told us all these things, and he's told us how to run our churches. But we don't listen <laughs> And so we end up following, you know, some guy's book that says, oh, you know, you can grow your church to 500 if you just do this. And we have to be careful with that. And so he's, he's telling Timothy here these exact things. He's saying we're to conduct ourselves in a certain way within Christ's church because this is not our church. Christ's Bible Church is not our church. Do you understand that? It's not our church. But we don't understand that. We don't, we don't really dial down on that. I think we get the gist of it. But what do we do when we invite somebody to church? Hey, why don't you come to my church? It's just by default. And we don't mean anything by that, but words mean things. you know. And so we have to be reminded sometimes that this church is not our church. It's Christ's church. And just like Paul was trying to remind Timothy, and the majority of New Testament letters to churches were written not just to the leaders, but to the whole congregation, to everyone who made up that church. Why? Because everyone who makes up a local church is important. It doesn't matter whether you're cooking in the kitchen or you're helping in Sunday school, you're greeting people at the door, you're ushering, or you're teaching behind a pulpit. God doesn't separate us that way. All right? You've heard me say this before. The only, the only difference between someone standing behind a pulpit preaching and the people in the congregation is the way they're facing on a spiritual level. And that's very true. And yet we tend to idolize 
our ministers and our pastors and to the point where it's, it's rather displeasing, I think, to the Lord. And so we have to be aware of that. Do they have a calling, a special calling even? Yes, definitely. I'm not arguing with that. But guess what? So does the person who works in the kitchen. And so does the person who, you know, cleans the, the restrooms during the week. Or, you know, these are all things that we're doing for the Lord. And so the elders are responsible to make sure that the church is run <clears throat> the way God wants it to be run. But also, that responsibility falls on the people that attend that church as well. And this is where so many congregations have walked away from their responsibility and they've let the leadership do whatever they want. And for the sake of unity, they don't say anything. And you can see what happens. Um, so we're going to learn some of these principles by which the church is going to be conducted, is, is said to be conducted by Paul, because it matters to Jesus Christ, because this is his church. It matters uh, to him so much that he moved the Apostle Paul to write this letter to this young man, Timothy, in the faith, just in case he couldn't make it and tell him this stuff personally. Um, now, we're not going to be talking about methodology. All right? We're, we're not going to find any reference in the New Testament or even in the letters that Paul wrote to um, particular programs that you should have in place. You know, I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up, but when I first started serving in ministry, the, the church I was going to was a Baptist church, and we would have, like, once a month we'd have some kind of program. Friend day, you know, bring a friend to church, you know. And we'd have this. We'd have, and it, it worked. I mean, more people, you know, you were motivated by all that. But, you know, they, they got all that good stuff, but they lacked a lot of other things that were very foundational to the church. And so we, we need to be reminded there's no place in the New Testament that talks about certain pit programs for growth that you should have in place or not have in place um, or a specific way that everything should be done. It doesn't tell us that. Instead, through the brilliance of the Holy Spirit, Christ gives his church foundational principles upon which they can build, and it, sh it can shape the church the way Christ wants it to be. And the beauty of his plan is that these principles, they always work. You don't have to guess about it. You know, I can take you to boxes of books that I have that tell you how to grow a youth ministry, how you can have 100 kids, you know. And these people sell these books, and you buy them thinking, okay, I'm going to do what he, this guy says because he's got a big youth group. And they never work. They never work, okay, because you're, you're failing to understand that a church grows because, you know, God is, is honored in that place and that, you know what, people are excited that God is honored in that place of teaching, and, and they're excited to see other people come under the blessing of that fellowship within that church, and so they're excited to, to, to see the church grow. But it's Christ that draw, grows the church. Um, and these things work whether the church is in you know, America or Angola, whether it's in Savannah or Seattle, whether it's in Redwood City or Raleigh. It doesn't matter where the church is located. It doesn't even matter. These are appropriate principles that we can apply to the church whether it's an urban church, whether it's a suburban church, whether it's a rural church or a country church, it doesn't matter. That's the, the neat thing about this. And they work, whether the church is filled with people who are rich or whether it's filled with people who are poor or anywhere in between. It's not, it's not based on all of that. Um, and these principles, by the way, 
worked in the first century as well as they work now. So th these are not things that are just invented by some. We're, they're actually going to see these in Scripture. And you say, well, why? who cares? Why are you teaching on this? Okay, why is this important? Well, I put it there in your outline. I think there's several reasons. But first of all, I want to do this because, you know, as a church goes through, especially here in our area, um, you know, you have new people coming in sometimes, and you want everybody to be on the same page. You want everybody to understand what makes our church tick, what's important to our church, what hallmarks do we think make up what the Word of God says makes up a biblical church. So sometimes it's, it's to introduce newer people about, hey, here's what we believe. That's why we just did that series, what we believe, okay? Because some of you never heard that, okay? Um, secondly, I think it's important to establish these key principles for a biblical church in all of our minds. Whether you've been here for a long time or whether you're brand new, it doesn't matter so that we're all on the same page. That kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you want everybody to be on the same page. You can't have a team if everybody's going off in different directions. That doesn't work. You know, that's why teams in football, what do they do? They have a huddle, right? And they bring everybody together and they say, okay, here's the play. You don't get to go out of the huddle and go, I'm just going to, I don't like that play. The quarterback called, I'm going to do something else. You can't do that. What's it going to do? It's going to destroy the team. It's not going to work. And so God has given us these, these principles. Um, thirdly, I think it's important to equip us to continue to pursue and strengthen these principles in the church. You can't pursue and strengthen something if you don't know what it is. Okay, and so it's, it's a lot of information. Now, am I saying, oh, our church is the only biblical? No, our church has a long way to go when we look at these principles. So don't get the wrong impression. I'm not here saying, oh, this is the only church that has these hallmarks. No, as a matter of fact, some of these hallmarks, we don't have these, uh, we're not at the level we need to be as a church. So that's another reason why we want to do this. Um, also, we want to guard and protect this church from, think of it this way, from drifting from these, these foundational principles or these moorings. Um, sometimes that happens. If you don't review things with people, if you don't um, mention them several times, then you know what? We, we, we tend to forget what's important and what's not. Also, just the way where we live, right? We live in the San Francisco Bay Area on the peninsula. Very transient community. People are coming and going constantly, right? There are people here in this room that weren't here a year ago. And there's people that are in this room that won't be here six months from now. <laughs> okay. Um, hopefully you won't go to glory, but I mean, maybe you'll move or whatever. It's just the community. It's been that way ever since I've been here. You know, people come and go, come and go. And it's important that, you know what, when you move from this church, that you understand when I move to my new area, you know what, I'm going to look for these hallmarks for the church I'm going to go to because it's important. And I can't tell you the number of people that have moved out of this area because of the cost, because of everything, and, or they wanted to get a house or whatever it is, and they, they move out to the valley or whatever, only to tell me, hey, we enjoy our new house. It's a lot easier to live out here, but we really, really, really miss the church. <laughs> we can't find it. It's hard to find what we have. So that's an important thing. Sixthly, I think we need to establish a legacy for Grace Bible Church. See, it's not good enough that the pastor and elder or leaders know 
what these foundational hallmark principles of, of kind of running the church, it doesn't, it's not that important that they know. It's more important that you know. Because you know what? I could drop dead tomorrow. Ken could be gone in a year. All right? Um, and then all of a sudden you have, well, we got to find a pastor. we got to more, more leaders. And you go and you hire some guy who comes in and says, you know what? I'm going to do it this way. And if the people don't understand what are the hallmarks of the church, what happens? They're off in a whole new different direction. And I know some of you are nodding your heads in agreement because some of you have been through this. Some of you have been part of a great church with a good history. And all of a sudden, there's a change in the staff. And the thing goes south. It goes wonky. It's just something happens. Why does that happen? Because there's no fundamentals. There's no hallmarks that those that congregation, there's no hill that they're willing to die on, basically. So when the new guy comes in, they just blindly follow him. And, and I don't want that ever for this church. I don't plan on going anywhere, but that's up to the Lord, you know. But sometimes when there's no guiding principles in a church, or the leaders and the members don't know what the guiding principles are, the new leadership can just ignore whatever they were if they're not going to say anything and just move on. And you see a church radically change overnight. And I think a, even a more important thing is that, and this kind of brings it down more personally for all of us, I think each of us as members of the local church, um, individually, we have to embrace what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks in our own personal lives. In other words, it's, these are hallmarks of a biblical church, but you could also say these are hallmarks of a biblical Christian life. Okay, these things will be present in your own life. Uh, we can establish these principles for the church, but the church as a whole, the last time I checked, is made up of individual people. And if the individual people don't understand the hallmarks of a biblical church, guess what? You're not going to have a biblical church. Because I could teach on the hallmarks of a biblical church till the cows come home. But until the congregation says, yes, you know what? I want that for my life. I want to live under the guise of these, these hallmarks as well. So it's very important to understand these biblical guiding principles for church and for church life. Um, and sometimes, I mean, you use this word and people get kind of freaked out, but, you know, you talk about a philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of ministry. Um, every church, whether they know it or not, has a philosophy of ministry. Every church does. And so, you know, some are very well thought out to the nth degree and are very carefully articulated, or maybe some are just, hey, it just, it's just assumed you know, um, it may be biblical, or some of them may have more the entrepreneurial idea, you know, we just kind of want to, you know, reach out and, and, and meet the felt needs of people. But every church has a ministry philosophy. Doesn't, matter, doesn't mean it's always biblical, though. And that's the key thing. So what is a philosophy of ministry? It, it's basically, it's a set of you could say it's a set of unalterable principles that determine how the ministry of the church will be done. These are things that do not change. 
Okay, it doesn't matter who the pastor is, doesn't matter who the congregation is, doesn't matter who the elders are. These do not change. Here's a definition. A biblical philosophy of ministry is a set of non-negotiable biblical principles that guides all the choices and decisions in the ministry of a church. That's very important to have. Because if you don't have that, what are you going to do? It's like, it's like throwing you know, mud at the wall. You know? I mean, it's just you, you don't know what you're trying to aim at. And so it's a biblical philosophy of ministry is a set of non-negotiable biblical principles. Okay, these come from God's word. They don't come from me. They don't come from Ken. They don't come from the congregation. Well, hey, this is a good idea. No, we don't get... Now, that may be a good idea. doesn't mean we don't do that. But where does it fit within our biblical principles? Because they come from God's word. That's the key. They're non-negotiable. And it guides all the choices and all the decisions in the ministry in the church. So what are the supporting principles that shape a true biblical church? What are the essential, you could say, components of a biblical church's philosophy of ministry? Or what are the hallmarks, right, of a biblical church that marks its genuineness, that marks its, its authenticity? There are, are three books in the New Testament that tell you um, we call them the pastoral epistles, basically. Um, they were written to pastors to tell them how to do church. Paul wrote all of them. He wrote uh, two letters to Timothy, his son in the faith. We're in one tonight. And he pastored a church in Ephesus along with the other elders there. And he also write, wrote a letter to Titus, who served on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And both of these men were pastors. So these are letters to pastors. If you want to know more about how this thing works, read 1 Timothy, read 2 Timothy, read Titus. And you'll see Paul's just instructing. Here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you deal with this kind of person. Here's, here's how you deal with this. And woven throughout those three books, as we're going to see, basically there's several hallmarks, but we're going to focus on five essential hallmarks or principles for maintaining a biblical church. Because just because we have a biblical church today doesn't mean it's going to be a biblical church two, week, two years from now. Things can change very quickly if, if we don't have our, our understanding of what these foundational hallmarks are. And so what are they? I, I, I listed them there. Number one, a high view of God. We're going to go over that tonight. A high view of God. Secondly, a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture. A biblical view of man. See, the church is suffering without a biblical view of man today because they view man as basically the end-all and everything. So why do we have church? Well, we just meet people's needs. That's the whole focus of church. You just got to meet their felt needs. No, it's not. That's not the, the purpose. So, you know, a biblical view of man. Fourthly, a biblical view of the church. What is the church? Is the church here to entertain people? I don't think so. I don't see that in the New Testament. Is the church here just so you can come and sing your favorite song and, and then go home? No. Is the church here just so you can get that shot in the arm once a week and hopefully the pastor will be on mark and he'll encourage you a little bit so you, you know, make it to Wednesday night? Or <laughs> No, that's, that's completely wrong. See, we have a totally foreign idea of what the biblical view of the church is. We look at, at the church as kind of like a watering hole. You know, we're, we're dying all week. Finally. Oh, made it to Sunday. So glad I'm here. Fill me up, Lord. 
Okay, here we start to track again on Monday. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's not it. But majority of people, that's where we are, in all honesty. Um, you know, we think of, of church as something we check off, something we do. I heard a story, you probably heard the story of the pastor, you know. He's, or I just blew the whole story. This guy's sleeping, and he wants to sleep in on a Sunday morning, and his wife's going, you can't. He's like, why not? Why not? She says, you're the pastor, right? You probably heard that. You know, sometimes you feel like that. Be honest, you do. You know, sometimes you probably got better things to do in your mind and got whatever on a Wednesday night then come out and listen to another Bible study, listen to another sermon, okay? But you know it's good for your spiritual growth, and so you come in spite of it. You, you make priority. Why? Because you kind of have a biblical view of what God's trying to do through the church. And then finally, it's really the central place, the central place of Christ and the gospel. A biblical church is the central place of Christ and the gospel. You look around this room, you see tracks, right? You'll go over in the lobby, you see tracks, all these tracks. And Dave's been very good at organizing them, and here are the Spanish ones, here's one that deals with Catholicism, here's one that deals with creation. Here's... Why do we do this? You know, these aren't free, they cost money, but why do we do this? We do this because it's important. Because it goes to who we are as a church. We, we care about people's souls. We want to give you tools that you can take the gospel to and you can leave a track with them. Maybe you're not real, you know, you're not the person on the, on the corner, you know, up on the soapbox preaching to people. Maybe that's not your personality. But surely you can leave a track on a table with your tip at a restaurant, knowing that within that track is God's truth. And knowing that someone, even if the waiter takes it and throws it in the trash, Maybe somebody's going through the trash and they see it. Well, it's, you don't know. I mean, this is the, the very unique thing about spreading the gospel. You don't know how God's going to do it. And so those five things we're going to be looking at. And these are the, the hallmarks of a biblical, healthy church. A high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a biblical view of man, a biblical view of the church, and the central place of Christ and the gospel. Um, where those things are present... Where, where those things are the guiding principles that a church lives by, um, that is someone who is, is really um, being biblical. They're, they're having a biblical church. Where, where these things are missing, where they, they don't have a high view of God or they don't have a high view of Scripture, where these things are missing, you will have a church that's somehow lacking in meeting the standard of authenticity when it comes to what God says is a biblical church. And we got churches all over the place, even here in the Bay Area, right? But you look around, and you know the Bay Area is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you know, you see what's going on. It's not good. People need truth. People need to hear what the gospel is and, and what God's word says. And so, where these things are present, you'll have a biblical, biblical church. So we're going to be going over a couple of these. Now today, we're just going to go through the first one, which is a big one, but we're just. Going to, these are kind of cursory view things, and you can figure out more on your own about them. But a biblical church will have a high view of God. What do we mean by that? What does that mean? Doesn't every church believe in God? Well, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I was in a pastor's meeting with local pastors here in Red River City, and there's a woman sitting next to me. We were going around sharing what our church is about. This was years ago, because I stopped going to this pastor's group because I just got tired of dealing with them. But 
we were sitting there, we were going around, and I was like the next to last person. And it came to me, and you're just supposed to take like five minutes and tell people what your church is about. So I said, well, you know what? We, at our church, we, you know, we have a high view of God. We have a high view of Scripture. And, you know, we kind of went through some things, and, and we really believe that, that, that God is to lead the church. It's not up to us. Explain some things, and you know, that's basically it. Teach the Bible, and blah, blah, blah. And the lady next to me, I think she went to the Unity Church. She was a pastor. She was a pastor. That was, give you a hint, that was the first problem, right? She was a pastor. But anyway, I'm, I'm being nice, you know, and sitting there, and, 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 and no lie. I mean, there's like 12 pastors there, right? She turns to me, and she goes, you offend me. And I'm not the kind of person, you know, I don't like to offend people, you know. And, and I'm like, excuse me? Like, what did she just say, right? She goes, you offend me. Just the, the words you use to describe God offend me. The church, and I'm like, well, how, how so? Well, we don't, we don't refer to God as him in our church. We believe in the unity. And she started going off, and, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, what do I do here? You know, I mean, and I think it was one of the Dennis Logie or something. It's like, you know, it's like, just calm down, Steve. You know, we know where you're standing on this stuff. Don't worry about it. And I thought, wow, what in the world was that? You know, but people don't understand what it means to have a high view of God. They understand perfectly what it means to take God off where he's supposed to be and say, well, no, we want God to be like this, right? Because this makes us feel better. And they are, are people that are, they don't understand a biblical church will have a sense of, of the majesty of God, right? They're, they're going to have the sense that people will be captivated by, not, not frightened by, but, but captivated by a, the, 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 the transcendence of God. So that's a word we don't use a lot, transcendence, but it's a very important word. What does it mean? I'll give you a couple synonyms just so you can understand what that transcendent word means. It means magnificent. It means extraordinary. It means unparalleled, unrivaled, unequaled, unsurpassed, incomparable, unique, superior, supreme, paramount, foremost, utmost, second to none. That's having a high view of God. God is transcendent. He is magnificent. He's extraordinary. He's unparalleled. He is unrivaled. He's unequaled. He's unsurpassed. He's incomparable. There's, there's no category for God that we can put him in. Do you understand that? He is in his own category. He is elevated. He is exalted. And a biblical church, when they have a high view of God, certainly understands that God is imminent. That's, that's, that's the opposite of transcendent. They understand that God is approachable, that we can have access to God. They understand that you can come to God and call him Father. You can call him Abba. See, that's his imminence. But a biblical church also understands that he is transcendent, that he is exalted, he is far above us. And therefore, based on those words, based on our understanding of what that means, he ought to be treated with a profound sense of reverence and respect. We don't see this in churches today, unfortunately. He ought to be feared. God is to be feared. 
they should understand that nothing about God should ever be taken lightly. Paul certainly understood this. He embraced this. He, he, he painted this portrait for Timothy and the church in Ephesus. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, just back a couple pages, in verse 12. Now remember, this is a personal letter from Paul to his son in the faith. His son in the faith is a pastor at Ephesus. And in verse 12, and I'm going to come back to this um, this section here, but beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul talks about his salvation. Look at what he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He's he's pointing out to Timothy, it's so amazing that God has saved me. Um, But I want you to notice what happens when he gets to the final thought about his salvation all the way down. We're not going to take time to read all this, but all the way down to verse 17. Verse 17. Look at what he says. To the king of the ages. Look at these words he uses to describe him. Immortable, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, and literally, he says, into the ages of ages. That's really what this means. Now, this is, this is just a personal letter to Timothy. Um, you don't hear this kind of language today in evangelical churches, unfortunately, um, much less in a letter from one Christian to another. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is clearly he's captivated. He's, he's captured, you could say, by the greatness of God. And he just bursts out with all this this verbiage talking about the greatness of God. And it happens time and time and time again. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, in this, in this, it's in the context here of challenging Timothy to make sure that church discipline is done fairly, that it's done justly, particularly when it comes to the elders. When they get out of line, it needs to be handled correctly. Make sure that you don't show any partiality when you're handing out church discipline. And, and notice how he breaks into this, this majestic kind of language in verse, all the way down to verse 21. Look at what he says. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you. So he's charging Timothy. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So he gives this picture of God and Jesus Christ and his elect angels. And he says, Timothy, you're living out your ministry in God's presence and in the presence of Christ, and in the presence of his angels. And so therefore, I'm charging you, I'm commanding you, do not show any partiality when you do this, when you do this church discipline thing. And see, when we live our Christian lives, we forget that we are living them out in the presence of God, that we are living them out in the presence of Christ, that we're living them out in the presence of his holy angels. Look over at chapter 6, verse 13. And this is kind of a pretty personal section here, really. He's charging Timothy to live out his ministry, and he's challenging him to pursue certain things and to fight for the faith. We're familiar with these verses. But look down at verse um, 13, because in the middle of of 13, uh, chapter 6, verse 13, he he really um, 
you see a picture here of the greatness and the majesty, uh, the exalted nature of, of God. Look at what he says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. And then he says this, who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Okay, that is who was willing, even at his own life, he's saying, to tell the truth and say, I am the Messiah, I am the King. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ that you keep the commandment. And you know what? This is it's important that he, he says this, to keep the commandment unstained, verse 14, and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And then he says, he who is blessed the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I mean, see, Paul just, it just flows out of him naturally because he has that high view of God. He understands what that means. He's, he's captivated by this vision of the majestic nature, the transcendence of God. And you, you, you can see just from the couple verses that we read, really, you get the picture of how Paul thought about God and how he wanted to teach Timothy, Timothy to think about God. And also how churches that they created, that they, they gave birth to, they started churches, uh, they founded, they pastored these churches. They wanted them to think these same things about God. They understood God's imminence. They understood that God is Abba, Father. They understood that he's accessible. Yes, he's, he's got a category all of his own, but he's accessible to us. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's just amazing when you stop and think about it. Um, when, you, when you speak of God's transcendence, another way to think of it is you're, you're talking really about his holiness, the idea that he is, is separate, okay? He is, he is uh, totally, in, a, in a, like I said, a different category. Um, he is far exalted in his moral purity. He's absolutely without sin. That's why we say you could, you could never look at God and say, how dare you can't do that? You can't attribute bad motives to a holy God because everything that he does is without sin, okay, and for our good, even though sometimes those things don't feel good to us. We have to understand that. And so this is, this is part of his holiness. He's separate. He's distinct from everything else in the universe, and it really, it really stresses his separateness from us as creatures. There's some people think, well, when we get to heaven, we'll have the mind of Christ, which the Bible indicates, so we'll be God. No, we won't. No, we won't. Or I hear Pete Christians say, boy, you know, I just have a problem with this, this, this theological doctrine or, or this, you know, but I know one day in heaven I'll completely understand everything. No, you won't. Or you'd be God. <laughs> you, you will not understand everything in heaven. We will understand a whole lot more than we do now, right? But we won't understand. We will not have the, the mind of God. We won't have everything that God has completely. That would make us God. And so he is distinct from us in that way. Um, we never lose sight of the fact that we are, what, the creatures, right? And he is the what? The creator. 
See, this is when you read through Romans 1. What did they do? They exchanged the glory of the creator, right, for the glory of his creation. And they started, rather than worshiping the creator, they, re, they worshiped the what? Creation of the creator. This is where we're at today. This is why you can kill a baby that's still in the womb and everybody cheers. But if you cut down a tree, you go to jail. I'm not lying. I mean, this is, this is where we're at. Okay, uh, and, and it's, it's important that we understand that that all comes from a low view of God. All those things that I just mentioned come from a low view of God. And there's many, many, many verses. Um, now, we are created in God's image. Don't lose sight of that. But he so far exceeds us that we can't even fit into a category with God. Um, Many verses, by the way, mention God's holiness in this context of his, of his majesty, you could say. He's exalted nature uh, throughout the, a lot of scripture, even outside of Paul's letter to Timothy. And it, for example, uh, I don't know if I wrote these down or not, but there's a couple in there. Exodus, yeah, Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Rhetorical question. God, there's nobody like you. Nobody. You are exalted beyond everything and everyone. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah in her prayer, she says this, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Um, holiness means simply that. There's, there's nobody like him. He's completely set apart. Um, he can't com be compared to anything. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, this is God's people, Israel, and it's being spoken to them. And Isaiah, the prophet, says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, indicating they weren't. <laughs> and then he adds this, <clears throat> And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Wow, we don't hear that kind of language when we talk about God. Or Hosea chapter 11, verse 9, God says, I am God and not man. It makes a clear statement. I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst. Do we understand when we come to church on a Sunday morning, there is a holy one in our midst that we are to worship? I mean, the fellowship's great, but we're not here for the fellowship, folks. The teaching may be wonderful, but we're not here for the teaching. We're here to worship God. We're here to, you know, for the audience of one. And then he says, I will roar like a lion and my sons will come trembling. Um, I mean, as disciples of Jesus Christ, our greatest desire, our first prayer every time we pray should be that that that. God's holiness, that his transcendence be known, and that therefore he be loved and feared. Not in a horror kind of way, like you don't want to go near him, but in the sense of understanding that he's God and you're not. <laughs> and that he should be utterly and completely respected and feared. Um, 
That's what the Lord taught. I mean, if you remember in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we talked about the Lord's Prayer, right? This was the Lord's Prayer. He probably never prayed this prayer. He didn't pray it as a prayer. This was an example of how to pray. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church got that wrong. I prayed the Lord's Prayer for years, 19 years of my life, every night before I went to bed. Well, not 19 years, but probably 16 years. When I started to talk, I, that's the first thing I learned. And you know what? I could do it in probably less than 10 seconds. And then throw in a Hail Mary just for, for, for the fun of it. Um, you know, and then my prayers were done. And God bless else, everybody else in the world. Amen. <laughs> you know, and then I go to bed thinking, hey, I checked it off. I did this. But what does he say? He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, and then what's it say? Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. What's that mean? God, may your, great, may your name be great. May all that's true about you, may everything you are and everything that's true about you, that you are set apart, be treated as separate, treated as holy. Um. This is, this is what we need to do. Every individual Christian should have this as its chief, chief concern, its first prayer, its, its first priority, that God may be treated holy, his separate, as distinct, majestic. That's a hallmark of a biblical church. And it's a hallmark of people that make up a biblical church. Well, how is the high view of God demonstrated in the local church? I wrote several down there. Um, if that's what it means to be a biblical church, to have a high view, one of the first things, uh, to understand not only that he's imminent, but he's, that he's approachable, that he's accessible, that he's nearby, he's Abba Father, but he's also elevated and exalted far above us. When God is set apart, this is an exhaustive list, but there's a couple things here. When this is present in the church, here's what will be present? First of all, there will be an understanding of the sovereignty of God in salvation. That's the first thing. There will be an understanding of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Where there's a high view of God, people will understand that God is sovereign in every way. If he's not sovereign in every way, he's not sovereign. Right? So you can't say, well, I believe he's sovereign over this, but he's not. No, that, that's, that doesn't make any sense, logically. If you're saying someone's sovereign, all-powerful, he's sovereign over all, then that's the way it has to be, including salvation. And Paul gets to this very early in the letter, all the way back in, in chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, what? According to the commandment of God, our, what's he say? Savior. According to the commandment of God, our Savior, our, our rescuer. He, he, he's telling Timothy, you know what? I didn't rescue myself. Don't pat me on the back for my salvation. And you didn't rescue yourself either. You know, it's always funny. People, yeah, you know, then I found God. Was he lost? What do you mean you found God? <laughs> well, that doesn't make any sense. See, that's a low view of God. God's out there wandering around, and you have to find him, and then when you do, then your life changes. No. God is not lost. He doesn't need to be found. We were in need, what, of rescuing. 
And the one who rescued us was God. It was his work. He chose to save us. We didn't choose to save ourselves. It was Jesus Christ who's our hope. And he gets to do it again there, all the way down in verse 12. I told you I'd come back to that. He begins to recount this. Notice in verse 11, he makes mention of the gospel and then uh, with which he's been entrusted. And he's amazed that he's been entrusted with this gospel because of who he is, in spite of who he is, really. And then in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into his service. Even though he says, I am amazed that God would, would, would use me because what? I was a former blasphemer. Paul's saying, there's no way I could have rescued myself. There's no way I could have saved myself. There's a lot of talk today in the church about universalism that somehow everybody's going to make it to heaven. There's a lot of talk about that. That somehow everybody's going to squeak by. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter as long as you're what? Sincere. Right? I've heard people say that about Jehovah Witnesses. I've heard people say that about Mormons. I've heard people say that about even believers or people who are not believers. Well, but they're sincere, Pastor. I don't care. You're not saved by your sincerity. You know, and the thinking is as long as you embrace something and you're sincere about it and you're faithful to that little belief, th that's fine. You know, and this is where the emergent church years ago, um, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And basically, he took that view. It doesn't matter really what you believe. Just in the end, you know, God will God will work it all out. Just be faithful um, to whatever you believe. Um, and, and the Word of God disapproves that. Jesus says not everybody's going to be saved. Not everybody's going to be willing to go through what? The narrow gate. <laughs> Why? Because it hurts to go through the narrow gate. It costs something to go through the narrow gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but the narrow gate leads to life. Um, see, I mean, Paul was an avid worshiper of the true God, the God of Israel. And yet, what does he call himself? I mean, you know, he was a Pharisee. He understood what he believed. Brilliant man. But he says here, I was a blasphemer. And, and a lot of people say, well, but he was sincere. I mean, he was doing everything he thought was right. But because he broke the first half of the commandments, he was a blasphemy because he failed to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. It had nothing to do with the, the rules he broke. But he failed to acknowledge who Christ was. He failed to acknowledge the Son of the true God. And therefore, he classifies himself, he calls himself a blasphemer. And basically, he's saying, you know what, if God hadn't rescued me, I would have died and I, have gone, I would have gone to an eternal hell. And you know what, that's true of every person on this planet, whether you want to believe it or not. And he goes on, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, he says. What did he do? He used to kill Christians. He killed Christians when he was a Pharisee. And, and, and he thought he was doing the right thing. He wasn't just, you know, like some atheist that went nuts. He, he thought he was doing the right thing according to his religion. These Christians threatened his Judaism, his, his view of who God was. 
And so he thought, well, I'm just going to wipe them out. He arrested them. He killed them. And yet he says there in the text, he says, yet I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. He's not ex ex excusing his behavior here, by the way. He's really saying, I didn't understand who Jesus was, nor even who he claimed to be. And you know what? I really didn't even understand the gospel. I was just trying to defend what I thought was my true religion. And I thought I was doing God a favor by killing these Christians. So how would a guy like that be rescued? How, he says in verse 14, he says it was the grace of our Lord that was more, what, than abundant. And that's true of every one of us. You may not have been killing Christians before you became a Christian, like the Apostle Paul, but you know what? Your sin was just as bad. You don't have to be a drunk and a murderer and a rapist and all that to, to be classified as sinful in God's eyes. You tell a white lie, forget it, you're going to hell. Uh, you know, so it's the grace of God we all need. It was God, it was his delight to do good to those who deserve the, his judgment, deserve the opposite. And he says there, with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Even, even faith and love that have become a part of me, he says, in my Christian faith, my newfound Christian faith, Paul is saying, they find their source, not in me. I didn't come up with this. I'm not a loving person just because, oh, I just worked really hard on that area of my life. No, that's Christ in me. And then he says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. He didn't come for good people. As a matter of fact, I thought of a line I'd like to use with somebody. You know, when you ask the person, you know, and you're evangelizing, and you say, well, do you think you're a good person? You know, and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. You know, I always want to say, oh, that's too bad, because <laughs> you ain't going to heaven. <laughs> what, you know, what do you mean, you know? And that would be a good kind of icebreaker with somebody, because they're looking, thinking you're going to go, oh, well, that's great. You do all this stuff. Oh, that's too bad. You know, Christ didn't die for you. Sorry. You know. He says, he came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, Paul says. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the worst, this was his view of himself, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? If God can save me, he can save you. It, it, Paul's saying, if, if, if God can save me after I've done all this stuff, he can save you. I was an example of all this stuff. If you doubt that God will take you and if you'll repent of your sins and believe in Christ, Paul's saying, you know what? No, I, I'm the perfect example that he will. I am the one right here. He rescued me. He saved me for that reason, Paul says. And in verse 17, we looked at this before, then he gets to this point about this, after he talks the whole discussion about salvation, he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him and him alone, be honor and glory for my salvation into the ages of the ages. Paul understood the sovereignty of God in salvation because he had a high view of God. Um, and when you 
don't have a high view of God and you don't have an understanding of God's sovereignty in the church, what happens? You have to use heavy-handed manipulation to get people to respond. You know, hey, let's just have one more, one more verse of just as I am. Come on, somebody come down and you know, play, the, play it one more time. Why do people do that? You know, if God's working in your heart on a Sunday morning, you, you need to talk to God. You don't need to talk to the pastor. I mean, I'm more than happy to talk to you, but I'm just saying, I'm going to point you to God. I've had people in the lobby afterwards, they're sitting there crying their eyes out. It's like, okay, you have to talk to this person. You go over and you're talking, well, pastor, can you pray for me? I said, well, I can, and I probably will, but why don't you just pray for yourself? I mean, why don't you just talk to God right now? Tell him what's on your heart. And out of that, sometimes God gives them salvation because they come to a point in time where they realize, wow, God is accessible, and yet he's holy. And yet he's a holy God looking at a sinful me, and now he's willing to forgive me based on the work of Christ. And see, when there are gimmicks to get believers to come to the church or to get saved and, and try to get unbelievers to attend the church, try to trick them into coming, you know, you have some little gimmick you do on a Sunday morning. And I mean, I've even read things, articles, where churches give away money on Sunday morning. You know, bring a friend, we'll give them $10. You know, it's like, what, what are they doing? Um, or they have raffles. We're going to raffle off a brand new car. You know, some of these mega churches, they got money to burn. But see, when, they, when there are gimmicks to get people to attend, whether they're believers or whether they're manipulating people to come to Christ, whatever it is, that's a low view of God. That's a low view of God. That's not a high view of God. That's saying that somehow we have to manipulate these circumstances. So these people can get saved because just you know, God alone, he can't do it on his own. Trust me, God is big enough to take care of any human heart. And he knows exactly what that human heart needs. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help other than that we, what do we do? We sow the seed of the gospel through a track or through a word or through a prayer. Um, secondly here, a high view of God in the local church um, There'll be times in the services where there'll be uh, allowed a time for real, real prayer. Um, and, and, and we do that here. I mean, we open up with a prayer. I usually open up with a prayer in the, in the beginning. Um, usually the person reads scripture. Uh, we have prayer going on Sunday morning. The worship team, we have prayer going on over here. Um, but I think it, it, it needs to happen in the service as well. And, you know, Unfortunately, anymore today, people look at, at prayer as something that's boring and something that, well, you can't do that in service because people, you'll lose their attention, they'll fall asleep or whatever. Well, um, you know, he, he, he points out in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, I think it is, he says, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands, um, without anger or quarreling, okay? But the, the idea is there that, that he wants people to pray. You gotta have the right spirit and, and all that. Um, and just compare that, that's what Paul says, this is what he wants going on in his church, in the Lord's church. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, he wrote this, and he's, he's writing this to pastors. He says, keep your pastoral prayers short, in your seeker services. The unchurched can't handle long prayers. Their minds wander or they fall asleep. That's his principle, right? 
You got to dumb everything down for these non-believers. Um, if you compare that to what Paul says here, uh, Paul's own prayers day and night, he says, without ceasing in places, right? Um, where there's a high view of God, there will be prayer. Why? Because you're acknowledging who God is. That's so important. Number three, God will be the focus of their worship. Where there's a high view of God, God will be the focus of their worship. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of churches today, it's not about God. It's about the people playing the instruments on the, on the platform or the, the gifted pastor with really good looking and dressed nice and can speak and just make you cry on a, you know, at a word's... You know, that's what it's really all about. It's all about people today in the local church. And when you walk into a church like that, we've all been in them, you can tell right away who the target audience is. It's people. It's not God. People are not to be our audience on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night or any other time. It should be God. Where that's true, God will be interwoven as an important, the main part of any message. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot of times. If, if the sermon series in that church is consistently, and that's the key, it's not that you're not going to have a topical message here and there, whatever, but the key is if, if, the, if the message, the sermon series is constantly about picking a mate, or improving your relationships, or having your best life now, or getting your finances in order, or having a better family life, blah, 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 blah. You can continue on. And it has no sense of the majesty or the greatness of God. That is a church that has become uh, man-centered. It's all about man. It's all about meeting the needs of those people, the felt needs of those people. And as a result, the church reflects a man-centered ministry and a man-centered message that attempts to please man rather than to glorify our God. Um, so you end up with a bunch of people that come to church, well, I hope it meets my need today. That's their, 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 their focus. R.C. Sproul said this, that approach to ministry is blasphemous. It's blasphemous. John Piper, in his book, The Supremacy of God, in preaching, wrote this, the grand object of preaching must be the infinite and exhaustible being of God. Then when preaching takes place, takes up the ordinary things of life, such as a family and, and job and leisure and friends or crisis of our day, these things only are not taken up. They are taken all the way up into God. So you're going to cover all those felt needs when you teach about the exalted God. Um, ask yourself, is God really the focus of my worship when we come together? Is that why I'm here? Fifth thing here, the leadership and the people will refer to God with respect and reverence. That's kind of a given. Um, you know, I've been in churches where I actually sat in a prayer meeting one time in a church and the pastor of the church, and it was a small church, and there was maybe 15 of us around the circle. He actually said these words. Well, let's talk to the man upstairs. <laughs> and he, that's how he opened the prayer thing. And, and you say, well, that's not that. Listen, 
God is not the man upstairs. He is not. And it, I think it's wrong to refer to him. That's, that's irreverent. That's not respectful. Okay? Uh, we, we, we should never talk about God in a flippant way or in a careless way. Um, sometimes another, another indicator is that sin in the congregation and the leadership will be confronted and addressed. This is what happens in a church where they have a high view of God and his church. They, they understand that, you know what, if sin is allowed into the church, that it, it needs to be dealt with. Okay, It doesn't mean we don't sin. That's not what we're saying. But unfortunately today, you have churches that just look the other way when it goes on. And they're unwilling to address it because if they address it, the people might get offended. And if they get offended, they may not come again. And so they're more confronted or they're more willing to not confront people over their sin and address it in a loving way, but take the chance of offending God. That's, we refer to that as church discipline. Um, where there's a high view of God, seventhly, the, the church will want everything it does to reflect well on God. In other words, everything that's all-inclusive. It, it doesn't matter whether it's the facilities. It doesn't matter, you know, in the first century, they didn't have buildings and that kind of stuff, so obviously they weren't thinking of that. They met probably in larger homes of people who were maybe wealthy or whatever, who were part of the church, because uh, it said they went house to house. They didn't even have property and stuff like that to meet in. But whenever God has commanded or supervised the, the building of a place for him to be worshipped, he always says it should reflect well on him. Okay, that's why, you know, and these are areas that, you know, we need to grow into. But, you know, hopefully when you come here, it's, 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 it's a pleasant place to come here. You know, it, it takes money to keep things up and patch things up and keep paint going and all that stuff. And it takes bodies to do all that. But you know what? I, I give you full permission. If you ever see anything that needs some attention, even if you do not want to do it yourself, come and let us know. Say, hey, you know, I was walking down to the, uh, the, the, the parking lot and I saw this, you know, the, the dead bush out. You know, we need to get rid of that or whatever it might be. Or this needs painted, or this needs done, or this. And, and even down to the point where, you know, this is why, and praise the Lord, God has provided the funds for this projector and things, but it, it's important that we do things well. We don't want something that's, that's not reflecting who the Lord is. Um, today, you know, we have this thing, we, we've come through, the church has come through this series of, of different phases out of the emergent church, and one of them is this, read this article on Christianity Today a while ago, but it was called Hipster Faith. And, you know, it, 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 it kind of talked a little bit about what this kind of hipster faith was in these contemporary churches. And it's, it, it said this, some churches now hold their service in bars and in nightclubs. Mosaic, that's the name of a church, Mosaic in L.A. meets in the Mayan nightclub. And in North Brooklyn Vineyard in New York City, they meet in a place called the Trash Bar. I'm not saying it matters necessarily. I mean, you could meet in a cow pasture, right? But these are, these are 
individuals who are purposely to get a reaction, to, to, to try to you know, be creative, uh, have church in a certain place where it, it may not be the best place. Um, and, and, and they do it because it gets them attention. That's not having a high view of God. Uh, we, it doesn't mean you have to meet in a building. You know, we could meet in a living room. But hopefully, when we're meeting in the living room, it's a living room that's, you know, presentable, that it's, it's something that's, you know, encouraging people to come and, and, and be part of. Um, and I'm going to leave you read the, the last few of these on your own, but just to, I'm just going to read through them. You, you always treat God, this is for your personal life, right? That was kind of demonstrations in the church. This is what it's going to look like in your personal life. You always treat God and everything connected to him with the highest respect and honor. Secondly, you will not take his name in vain. You will, and, and that, by the way, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of times we text, you know, we're always texting. And, um, you know, I've mentioned this to people, you know, that have written me a text in a loving way, they'll, they'll, they'll put in their text, you know, OMG. And I'll write back, do you know what that means? <laughs> you know, and it, you know, in our, in our society, we've dumbed it down so much, but it really technically it's taking God's name in vain. Oh my God, right? And, and I know they don't mean anything by it, but this is what I'm trying to get you to see is, is we need to raise the standard, not lower it, raise it. Um, you will make time for prayer in your life. Um, you will be... Um, God will be the focus of your Bible study, not some author somewhere. You'll be aggressively dealing with sin in your life. Your desire will be for everything in your life to reflect well on the majesty of God. Um, and you will love the truth of God's sovereignty in your salvation. These are things that will be personally evident in your own life. And none of us do these perfectly. So we all have areas to grow in, right? And as a church, we have areas to grow in as well. But, you know, let's, let's make it a, a matter of prayer and a matter of purpose to, to say, you know what, we want our church to have a high view of God. We don't want to lower God down. We want, we want to have a high view of Scripture. And we'll be talking about that in the future. Well, let's pray, and then we can have a little bit of fellowship. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have laid out for us in your word, how to conduct ourselves in the local church. Lord, it's not up to us to kind of enact our own creativity and come up with our own principles uh, for, for behavior and conduct within the church. You've already given them to us. And Lord, they're not stale or starchy or, or boring. Lord, this really creates an environment where you can thrive, where, where people can come to know you and, and really notice, wow, there is something different here. Uh, they're not trying to be like everybody else. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is something that, that is, is definitely a, a different place to be. They're not just trying to tell me what I want to hear, but I have a real sense they're trying to communicate to me the truth of the living God. And Lord, I pray that we would personally take that on in our own lives as well when we interact with our family and friends and coworkers. Lord, that we would not be um, shamed in the silence, but we would be boldly speaking forth your truth and the grace, like Paul talked about, the grace that saved him, that our testimony would be fresh on our lips, that people could see that you're a God who changes lives and desires that all come to faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take us from this place safely to our homes, pray that we'd have a good rest of the week. And Father, we ask that you would uh, 
and be with those that are traveling and in the summer and I know that uh, several families are gone traveling and, and uh, we just pray for them uh, in the coming weeks and bring them safely back to us as well. And we just ask for your blessing now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.